Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just ask for uh, grace this morning to hear the words of your Son um, as they are intended to be heard, as gospel proclamation, as liberation, um, as uh, hope. Uh, In your name we pray, amen. Bear with me for a second. Okay. We're missing one page, but that's okay. Because I think I can remember it. (laughs) We got a new printer that sits right above the garbage can, and I think what happened is the, uh, the little thing that catches the paper wasn't activated, so the garbage can is the recipient of the first page. <laughs> but that's all right. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount is our context. We've been preaching through it, and it's hard to preach a sermon on a sermon. It's kind of like trying to explain a joke. You know, you, you, you're a little, uh, it's an odd situation, and I think it's important for me to just kind of um, explain for a, a few minutes what it is that we're reading here, because the Sermon on the Mount is challenging on many levels. Of course, it's personally, personally challenging because um, it's personally challenging because the, the teaching is intense. It, it gets to some core issues in our lives. But it's also challenging to just to understand the kind of thing that it is. It's, it's, it's a, a kind of uh, gathering together of sayings of Jesus. And, and I think he did preach a sermon like this. Luke records a sermon that's kind of like this, a few differences, but I think Matthew may have also gathered together other sayings of Jesus as well. There's a lot of content, there's a lot of material. And it, it's just helpful for a minute to kind of regroup around what kind of thing this is so we don't get the wrong impression. All right, so I'll tell you what I mean mean by that. This is very early in Jesus' ministry, so if you have your Bibles, it'd be great to open to them, and you can see it's in the start of the gospel. This is not at the very end. This is at the very beginning. And, And it comes right after Jesus' public ministry begins. And so first thing we need to ask ourselves and become very clear on is what is Jesus' ministry? And I'll tell you why that's important. So we'll see in chapter five, uh, chapter four, uh, after Jesus is baptized and begins his ministry, all right, he began to preach. He began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the inaugural statement of what Jesus has come to do. He's come to preach the inauguration or the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's okay if in your mind nothing comes to mind. It's, it, it could be for many of us an unfamiliar phrase. Uh, what is the kingdom of heaven? Um, that's for another sermon, uh, but it's a very important term, and it has to do with the way in which the authority and reign of God begins to work itself into the world through Jesus Christ. And you remember, and I like to say this often in my sermons, remember we're on a journey to something. 
There's a purpose to our lives. There's a purpose to the world. We're on the move, and what we're moving to is the new world, the creation of a new world, a new heaven and a new earth where the light of Christ is like the light of the sun, where we will see him face to face. There's a distinct purpose in your life and in my life and in our lives together that really matters. God created us with intent and purpose. And the intent and purpose is not just to make us better people. And that's the first thing I want to say is that the Sermon on the Mount is not just tactics for you to become a better person. That's not the point. God really doesn't care about whether you're a better person. It's not impressive to him. All right? He just doesn't, he's not interested in trading in that kind of thing. All right? That's a moralistic kind of reading of the Sermon on the Mount. So on the one, and this is how sometimes people get trapped, and I sometimes get trapped in it too, that Jesus starts out saying, I am here to announce the coming of the kingdom. And you'll see in chapter four, he goes right into it. He says he starts teaching and proclaiming, this is in chapter four, verse 23, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then all of a sudden, bam, now it's time to become a better person. Like what happened to that Jesus? What happened to the Jesus talking about all the good stuff and now he's gonna lay on us all these rules that we have to follow? That's not what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. It's very important for us to hang very tightly onto the Jesus who's come as your Lord and Savior. That's the one who is preaching to you. And the motive is the same. It's not to hang you up on how to be a better person. It's the same gospel, which is how can you be free from the clutches of dark, bad things and be equipped to live in a life of liberating power and freedom, to become and flourish in who you were meant to be. It's like through Jesus, a little bit of that future world comes into our present. The Apostle Paul is working with these themes all the time, so I'm gonna quote from Paul once in a while because Jesus and Paul are together, all right? Those of you who may read a little bit about this stuff, sometimes people like to think Jesus and Paul are on different pages. Just rip that book up. It's just not a good way to look at it. Paul says that the Holy Spirit's the down payment of our inheritance. It's a little bit of money now. And, and it's great. And the Sermon on the Mount is an expression of that. That's why, for example, when we read the Beatitudes and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He's not asking you to become poor. He's trying to say that for people who are poor, there's good news. I'll give you an analogy that Jesus is drawing from the prophets here very deeply. And you know, in Isaiah, Isaiah says the lame will leap for joy. What's the application of that statement? to go out and lame ourselves? No. We're to be happy that those who are lame, which is a metaphor, are gonna leap for joy. Jesus is not saying go out and lame yourselves. He's like, oh, you know, okay, let me explain this. You know, let me try, try this again. He's not saying we're supposed to become full of sorrow. He's saying that for people who are, they're going to be happy by the fact that God is breaking in to, to get at the source of that sorrowness. Those people who are hungry, and aren't there a lot of people who are hungry? They're gonna be fed. 
I'm not asking you to become hungry. I'm asking you to rejoice that those who are hungry will be fed. And of course, like I say, this is a metaphor. We're all hungry for something. And that's, what, that's why these are such powerful words. On the one hand, for those of us who are really hungry and really sad, there's something about what Jesus is saying that makes us really happy and really satisfied. And like I say, these are metaphors, so we can, on the one hand, be happy that God is delivering those in need, and we can also say, I'm one of those people on some level. It's a glorious and amazing message. We're not trying to work ourselves up into something. We're trying to receive something. It's very different. God is giving us bread to eat. Of course, Jesus does not know and does not want us to know the great separations between what goes on in our heart and what happens on the outside. And so Jesus is going to show us, hey, what does it look like for the kingdom of heaven to express itself through you? So here's one of the key points I'd like to make. The kingdom of God has to come in you before it works out through you. You have to receive the kingdom in your heart, which is simply a way of saying to trust Jesus and to experience his love. And then the fruit that bears is gonna look a certain kind of way and that's what the Sermon on the Mount starts to shape. Now it's what's called an exhortatory kind of sermon. He's exhorting us to something. So yes, he does press on us to act because that's what a good preacher will do. And in the pressing on us, again, remember that Christ is blessing you with his presence. He's not guilt-tripping you. But nonetheless, he's working with these words to create awareness of where there are places in your life that are not reconciled to the gospel, that are still in jail. Think of your, you know, the, the church has always thought of the soul as kind of like a building or a house. You know, if you think of your house like that, there may be prison bars in some of your rooms. And Jesus wants to say, let's, let's get to that place. You know, we don't often know where that is, but what's inside starts to bubble out in real life circumstances. And Jesus is very pragmatic here. He's very practical. And yet his way of talking about practical things lifts it up into an amazing place. So let's remember that as we're working through Jesus' teaching here on these particular areas that this isn't a different Jesus and it's not a different message. It's not Jesus the wonderful liberator over here, now Jesus the heavy-handed rule teacher over here. Let's just not do that. Let's accept this as the same loving Jesus who wants to set us free is setting you free in this case now with his words. And they're intense and they're powerful because he's, he's doing real things inside of us. So today, we're gonna look at anger, lust, divorce, and oaths. And I've done my best to try to think about what's common to those things so I don't just say, first we're gonna talk about this, now we're gonna talk about this, now we're gonna talk about this, because at the end of that, you would be exhausted and wouldn't remember what on earth I was talking about. So um, I, I want to talk about some common features uh, with, with these teachings that will help us organize ourselves in them. First of all, anger, lust, divorce, and even oaths in the way that Jesus describes them here are all expressions of an attempt to have control or power over others. 
All right, so that's one common feature, and you might be able to find others too, by the way. This isn't like the only interpretation. You, you can let the Lord speak to you on this as well, but it's at the very least uh, anger and lust and divorce in the way it's described here, and I'll get to that in a minute, and oaths are all an attempt to control, to have power over others, and that's why they're expressions of parts of us that are unreconciled to the gospel. Gospel fruit is liberating, right? Sinful fruit is controlling. And I'll get to some more of those contrasts. Jesus will bring those out. But you can always sense the spirit at work when there's freedom. And you can sense the sinful proclivity or inclination at work when there's a, a, tense, a, 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 when there's a, a movement to control or, or have power over. And so that's one thing that we see. Uh, anger kills. Lust consumes. Divorce frees me from an obligation. Oaths manipulate. In fact, the consequences are uh, the opposite of all of those things. We may think when we're venting our anger or consumed in lust or freeing ourselves from an obligation or manipulating superstitiously, we, we, we may think that we're actually gaining power, but in fact, the consequences are exactly the opposite. We have less power and less control. We're actually trapped by these qualities. We aren't freed by them, we become enslaved to them, and in the process, we hurt other people. And that's one of the things Jesus wants to say. In fact, instead of, of, of gaining from this, we become more isolated, we become more solitary. Angry people don't have lots of friends. People who are consumed in lust don't build relationships, they don't bear fruit. People who are manipulative don't form bonds of trust, they become more and more and more isolated. So not only are we enslaved by these things and we become isolated, but we also destroy the future. And remember, part of the message of Jesus is to usher in hope in the future, a hope that's so powerful that it's even stronger than the fear of death. This kind of stuff that Jesus is talking about works in the opposite direction, which is what the enemy loves to do. The enemy fractures and he, he's retrograde always and he's always icing. This is just a picture of the devil, really. Anger doesn't open up new possibilities. It kills the few. Lust is empty. It bears no fruit. There's no children that come from lust. In, in thinking particularly in the modern world where we have technology to, to capture this or covetousness, Divorce destroys the image of Christ and his church, which marriage is a symbol of. Oaths shut the door to seeing God work sovereignly and freely. So Jesus is saying the movement of the kingdom moves in exactly the opposite direction. That's why this is so liberating. The way of the kingdom brings life. It creates fruitful relationships. It reveals the beauty of Christ and his church. It reveals God working all things together for the good of those that love him? Isn't that better? It's much better. Where we find the words of the Sermon on the Mount so challenging is that we just have so little power sometimes. We are so caught in these traits. We find it so difficult to overcome anger or lust or manipulation or the desire to set ourselves free from obligations. And that's where we find these words so challenging because we feel like we're kind of left on our own. But we're not left on our own. 
at all. What is merciful about these teachings is that Jesus is bringing our inner world and our actions together. What we are inside really matters to Jesus. Now you can see Paul, because we're very early in the ministry of Jesus, we don't know yet, so to speak, that he's gonna die and rise again and what that means. Jesus is very early in his ministry. But we know what the end is and we know what matters. And this is what, how Paul describes life in Christ. He says we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, which is another way of saying Christ in us. It's just a beautiful language. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That's true of each and every single one of us who have embraced faith in Jesus Christ. We're new creations. That's a beautiful imagery of baptism. We die to sin and we are raised in newness of life. Whether you feel like it or not is another subject. But the fact of it is based on the fact of Jesus Christ, not on us. That's the beautiful thing. It's reliable. We can always go back to the beginning that we are new creations in Christ Jesus objectively. Behold, all things have become new. And so that power that's working within us, that Holy Spirit power, is what's helping us let Jesus farther and farther into those difficult places. So let's look at some of these things that expose this. First of all, we look at anger, and we see that this is a heart issue, um, which results in destructive actions. Why do I say it's a heart issue? Because Jesus is, uh, these are, by the way, there's a word for these things. Um, Have you ever heard the uh, the word antithesis? One thing is different than the other, or one thing is opposite than the other, antithesis. So these are called antitheses. And the reason they're called antitheses is because Jesus says, you've heard this thing, but I say unto you this thing. Okay, and you'll see this pattern. And the reason I bring this out is because what Jesus is doing is he's establishing his authority. Remember, he's speaking to Jewish people who know the Torah, the, the, the words of God, expressed in the Old Testament very, very well. That's the most authoritative. And Jesus is not trying to to contradict the words of the Torah, but there's something very unusual about the way Jesus teaches that other rabbis don't. You won't hear other rabbis saying this kind of thing. Jesus alone is saying the shocking thing. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, Okay, these antitheses. So he's establishing his authority and and it's very serious what he's doing here because Jesus is the word of God. He says, I haven't come to abolish the Torah. I've come to fulfill it. And here Matthew is showing us just one of the ways, and there are many, that Jesus is fulfilling the Torah in part by the way that he teaches and by the way that he establishes his authority. So you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Have you heard that before? That's one of the 10 commandments and that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, there's a very important scripture in Jeremiah. I, it's very easy to remember because it's two numbers that are the same. Jeremiah 31, 31. It's, it's part of the new covenant, the New Testament. And Jeremiah says, the Torah 
in the new covenant is gonna go inside of you. The Torah is going to go inside of you. The prophets love to talk about that. Ezekiel talked about a new heart, a heart of stone being replaced by a heart of flesh. And Jesus is in this vein of saying, the Torah isn't something that's just out there as rules to follow. It's actually an animating expression of God at work inside of you. Inside of you. And that's why Jesus says the problem's in here. It's not just simply a fact that you shouldn't murder. If you are angry with somebody in your heart, you're being just as destructive. The problem's inside. And he says, and he gives examples. Whoever insults his brother and says, you fool. There's a destruction, there's a a will to destroy or to deface or to vandalize the image of God that's inside of a person because the image of God is in each one of us. We are made in the image of God and that's so important to Jesus, very, very important to him that the image of God be restored. Again, you'll hear this often in the Apostle Paul where the Apostle Paul will say that Christ is at work in us to restore his image. In fact, Paul says, I'm laboring until the image of Christ be formed in you And that's what we're gonna discover when we see him face to face. One of the best verses in all the Bible, you'll hear it quoted in our Eucharistic prayer. It's it's what it's about. To To be seen by Jesus and to see him is really what we're made for. It's the apex of joy. I just think of a baby looking into the eyes of its mother. It just doesn't get better. And when we in our anger deface that image of God in another person, we're hurting them. And Jesus says that is like murder. So it's something that's inside that's the problem. And, and, uh, and that's what anger often is like. Now not all anger is wrong. Jesus got angry. God gets angry. Sometimes we need to get angry. This is the kind of anger that hurts, that destroys, that's vindictive, that wants to bring another person down and elevate myself. And that's, that's the kind of anger that, that can be, I mean, you can be seething with anger on the inside and show no expression of it on the outside at all. You felt that way and you've probably felt other people around you being that way. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, you need to learn how to be polite. Polite people in good company don't get angry. This is not what he's saying. Jesus overturns the temples, all right? God has fierce language for his enemies. That's different. And what Jesus is saying is, there's coming a day of judgment And it's a very real day which will expose all of our hypocrisy. So we may be able to fool other people and ourselves. Of course, we're not really fooling anyone. We're only rationalizing and justifying ourselves. But that's going to come to an end. Better to take care of it now. Better to see that we struggle with anger now. How can we know whether we have this kind of anger? Well, one area is that uh, in our worship, when we're bringing our gift to the altar, 
All right, this is a, of course, we don't bring gifts to the altar in the way the Jewish people do, but we're bringing ourselves as offerings. When we're in our act of worship, and by the way, take note of the fact that all of these sayings take place within a context of relationships. All right, that's why he's not saying, you as an individual, I want you to go away from society and work this thing out. No, this is all very communal. When you're worshiping with your people, when you're thinking about your brothers and your sisters and your friends, when you're, when you're with women, now he's talking to men here, you know, he's assuming you're gonna be around women. He's not saying escape. He's saying in the context of the ebb and flow of your daily life with all of your people and all of your family and all going to church on Sunday and your job and all the messiness of all of that, that's where the gospel life can be so transformative. And he's saying that's when you need to be tuned in and if it comes to light that your brother has something against you, you need to stop for a minute because God is saying, I care more about that than your sacrifice. Actually, I don't really care about your sacrifice with respect to these other things. And that's where we need discernment. Interestingly here, and very challengingly, Jesus doesn't say, if you've done something against your brother, go and fix it. He says, if your brother has something against you, I want you to fix that. It's even harder in my mind. Now, it's very important to take note of the fact in this and also in some other ones like divorce, which is controversial, Jesus isn't saying all that can be said. He is not telling you how to do this. He expects you to use discernment. He expects you to work with your people. He expects you to gain insight. This is compressed. Jesus is saying it's an urgent matter. It's so urgent that if you're at the altar, leave, go, and fix this other thing. It's more important. It's, it's meant to say this is urgent. When something like this comes to light in our lives, we need to treat it with urgency. It doesn't mean we need to act rashly. Some things are really complicated. It's very important for us to hear what God is saying to us about the thing that's revealed to us. All right, so what Jesus is getting at here is not tactics on how to do something. He's saying, pay very close attention when something comes to light. Treat it with urgency. Treat it with sobriety. It's important to me and it's important to you. And if you don't know what to do or you can't even understand it, that's okay. That's why the Holy Spirit is here, to work these things together for the good of those that love him in our community. But it's a heart issue. Um we are expected to take initiation. Now, interestingly, this thing on uh, anger wraps up with this unusual story about the accuser. It's an unusual uh, continuation of the thought of anger. First, we're talking about our brother and the sacrifice. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus brings in this accuser thing. Now, this is a reference, actually, to Proverbs chapter six, and this would be another interesting Bible. There's a lot of Proverbs that gets into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You can think of in the Gospel of John where Jesus is the wisdom of God. 
And you'll see a lot of that kind of coming out in his ministry, even in uh, Matthew. But um, there's this idea that you're in a context of, again, uh, you, you, you may want to exert control over something, but Jesus is saying, look, be savvy, don't be dumb. First of all, the accuser is not a Jewish person. They, Jews, Jews didn't have this kind of a law, debtor's prison. So in this context, there's some Gentile that is, uh, is accusing you of not paying your bills. Now, there are all kinds of ways that you could try to manage this. It doesn't sound very comfortable to me. I don't know what point it is to throw somebody in jail if they owe you money because they can't work. I never could figure that out as a rational way of solving a problem, but it's how they did it back then. Um, and it, it, it wasn't very nice, it was nerve-wracking, I'm sure. And what Jesus is saying is, the, the best way I can describe this is, Jesus comes up with a creative solution. You can't think creatively when you're angry. The first thing that goes out that anybody will tell you, and all of us can testify, that when we're angry, we make the worst choices ever. It just never works out well. Anybody lose their temper and make really great decisions? Probably not, all right? Um, that, this kind of anger shuts down options. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to think this way. You know, it's very important for us to know that when we're faced with a dilemma like this, rather than be, kind of rush forward with this angry passion and try to fix it, let's let God do something. It's a very creative solution, and, and it's also an expression of what happens when our trust in God is so high. And in fact, it's something that lies underneath almost all of these uh, principles is a fundamental trust, a fundamental trust that we can let go of the urge to control. You can't just simply work on these things. You have to let go of one thing. Well, actually, it's a better way to say you have to grab hold of something else so that you can let go of the other thing. I mean, the, the metaphor can kind of work both ways. Grabbing hold of Jesus is how we let go of so many other things, right? It's the best starting point. When we're confident in Jesus, we don't have to defend ourselves so hard. We don't have to rush with the passion of anger first. We can let God take care of us. We don't have to over-control. Anger is, a, in a certain way, a revela there's, it's revealing something about that place where we really don't trust him. Why do we get so angry in traffic, for example? Do you ever ask yourself that question? We love to make jokes of it, and it is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's it telling you about yourself? There's something in there that's not right. We should not be losing our temper in traffic. We just shouldn't. It's not righteous. I mean, we can argue about it later, but I'll win the argument. <laughs> it's telling you something. All right, it's telling you something. Um, okay. Um, Let's move in on to the subject of lust because, wow, I'm already at the end of my sermon. Um, I want to talk about, actually, I want to say something. Well, I'm going to actually move into divorce. Lust is a lot like anger in this sense. Um, lust is also like anger, revealing something about ourselves that's thirsty for something that we're getting the wrong way. All right, and it comes back to the same kind of issue that we've talked about in 
anger. It defaces, it destroys God's image. You're hurting somebody. Even if it, it's with your computer, you're hurt, that person is hurting. I mean, you get, it's the very same principle. And I should take note as I go into divorce, I just wanna just touch on divorce just very briefly. Um, this is a male-focused couple of words here, guys. In the section on lust, he's talking to men, and in the section on marriage, he's talking to men. Now, we can apply it to women. It's applicable to women, but I just want to make note of the text because I have to preach the text. And Paul's saying, men, don't lust. Men, don't get out of your obligations with respect to marriage. Okay, so I want to just reemphasize those two points and I wanna say with respect to divorce, this is not all that can be said about divorce. Again, this is compressed language. Let me explain why. Jesus is upholding a very high view of marriage. There are pastoral reasons why divorce is allowed. There are at least two examples in the New Testament. One is adultery and the other Paul talks about in the occasion where somebody is married to an unbeliever that leaves. So I just want to emphasize that because I know many of us in our congregation have struggled with this issue personally. That Jesus' words, Jesus' text here is not saying all that can be said about divorce. I don't want anybody here to try to map your questions into my comments here. This would be a much larger conversation. All right, so I don't want anybody to leave here with the kind of guilt that comes from your own personal story. I, I want to I stay in the same vein of what is Jesus saying about this. At the time of Jesus, as you can imagine, even with analogous to our own time, the Jewish community was starting to play a little free with marriage. And the uh, men who wanted to get out of their obligation were finding it easier to do so. And Jesus is saying, okay, we're gonna course correct and remind ourselves that that's not the purpose of marriage. You don't enter into it for your own benefit and then when you want something else or someone else, you can get out of your commitment. That's what Jesus is talking especially about here. He's saying that's, that's like anger and like lust. You're taking your wife and, and you're just making her a non-person. Anger has to make the other person a non-person somehow. All right, that person in the car that just cut me off is not a person who's rushing to the hospital because, you know, their spouse got hit by a car. You know, that's a bad person. You know, um, that, that wife of mine, I'm just tired of her. I found another wife I want, so I'm gonna go fix this problem, all right? That's objectifying. That person that I'm lusting after isn't a real person, all right? That's just uh, somebody I'm using now. And Jesus is saying that's not right in any of these circumstances, and it's not right in divorce. He said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. In other words, you're putting your wife in an untenable situation. It's sinful to do this. We don't divorce our wives in order to marry other wives. All right, so again, there's a lot more we can say about divorce 
and its complexity and what is adultery and all kinds of things. Here, Jesus is talking to men who have the power and he's, he's saying you cannot simply treat your spouse as an object of your ownership that you can dispose of when you're tired or interested in something else. That's not what marriage is. And again, to reference Paul, Paul says that the marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. That's what's at stake. And just like we've talked about in the other areas, Jesus is lifting up the image of God in you. He's raising up the image of God in you. And he wants you to actually not just know it for yourself, he wants you as an expression of his followers, somebody who's set free, he wants you to see it in other people. So rather than killing them with anger and objectifying and, and feeding on them with lust and disposing them, of, you know, disposing them because you can, how about you do the opposite of all that? How about you see the image of Christ in those people? Not naively, not with sentimentality. Jesus was the least sentimental person on the planet, all right? He had no track for naivete. I'm not talking about that. Jesus was jealous over the image of God in people, and he wants those of us who follow him to be ignited with that same passion, to be, to be energized by that same experience of being his precious one, but then also seeing that in other people as his disciple, and that's what's working through divorce. So you can see the challenge in trying to capture all of this in, in one sermon, but I think I've tried to lift out for you a couple of things. First of all, remember, Jesus is passionate about you. He's passionate about you. He's passionate about setting you free, about, about giving you liberation from your passions that, that are uncomfortable to you. Nobody likes to be angry. Nobody likes to be confused and, and full of lust and, and, and superstitious and worried. Jesus says, I, yeah, the way that you overcome those things, first, first of all and second of all and third of all, is to have an encounter with me all the time. To know me and my liberating power in your heart where all those other things happen. And in the ebb and flow of your daily life with your family and your people and yourself to let the Holy Spirit illuminate those places where you're in jail and to let those places open. And then you become that two-way street. On the one hand, you're experiencing the love of Christ yourself. And then on the other hand, you're a conduit for that same liberating love to reach out into your key relationships. And you can rest assured that when you become that two-way street, your life will bear fruit in exactly the place that God has called you to be. That's how the kingdom spreads. That's how the kingdom spreads. That's the proclamation of the reign of God coming inside of us and through us and community by community, family by family, congregation by congregation, that movement is bringing forth the joy that makes the lame leap and the sad become joyful and the hungry become filled and the persecuted be able to give it all up because on just on the other side of the veil is eternal life just the way we always wanted it and even better. So I invite you now just to let the Lord speak to you about that two-way pathway. Are there places where you haven't experienced 
Christ as the liberator of that area? Can you access him in your heart in a vital and vibrant way and know the love of Christ and the joy he has in you and the anticipation that he has to see you face to face? And can you let the hard places of those difficult relationships and that difficult temptation that you have or the desire to get out of obligation because you can't, you want something else. Let the Lord speak to you in those places. You don't have to solve the problem. You don't have to figure it out. God will help you to know how to do that the right way at the right time. And because life's complicated. And that's why we have Jesus and his people to help us. Amen.